Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Optimistic Design, a speaker series where we take a practical, positive look feature of design, ethical innovation, and technology. I'm your host, Wilma Lamb, Director of Strategy here at Substantial. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Jennifer McFadden, Associate Director of Entrepreneurial Programs and lecturer at the Yale School of Management. Over the last decade, she has played an integral part in developing and fostering entrepreneurial culture, both at Yale and in the broader industry. She has mentored and advised founders across a wide range of experiences, industries, and stages of development along the way. Jen is also co-founder of Skill Crush, an online education company she founded in 2012, which focuses on teaching women technical skills. Hi, Jen. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Wilma. So glad to be here. I know. We're so excited to have you with us. Well, I always enjoy talking to you, just personally, generally. You're so- still one of my favorite former students. <laughs> so thank you. Carry that mantle on. <laughs> appreciate that. So you co-founded Skill Crush in 2012 and are now teaching and mentoring upcoming entrepreneurs in your current role at Yale. I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what drew you to entrepreneurship. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit in my blood. Mm-hmm. My dad was an engineer. He co-opted at NASA when he was at Virginia Tech, um, spent a lot of his early career around technology, worked at IBM for about 10 years and then went off and founded his own company when I was still pretty young and ran that company for about 30 years. So he did large-scale projects with manufacturers across New England, helping them automate. So I grew up both around a lot of technology, probably more so than the average individual, and then also around somebody who you know, was going through the daily ins and outs and struggles and positive sides of running their own company. Um, so I think it just was part of who I am and what I what I grew up with. I think also as the the daughter of an engineer, you have instilled in you in a very early age this kind of idea of questioning everything. So why is it that way? Why should it be that way? Why shouldn't it be some way else? Um, how can it be improved is kind of part of that mentality. And I think that's a lot of what you see in entrepreneurs is curious nature and questioning why things are as they are. Yeah. And so when you became a founder, like starting Skill Crush, who are the most kind of influential mentors and advisors for you? Yeah. I mean, this is such a funny thing. So I would say I had everything from kind of standard former faculty members. I had Barry Nailba there who I would go and pester with questions post-graduation and reach out to two colleagues that I'd worked with in the news industry. So I'd worked at the New York Times and then was at the time working for Jeff Jarvis, who runs the digital program over at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism. Um, Jeremy Kaplan there as well. Uh, both of them were former news folks who were really interested in the application of entrepreneurship to the news industry, which, you know, this is back in 2009 to 2000. 14, when I worked with them, clearly there was a lot going on as there was a transition more to the digital side of the news industry and and margins were being hammered and really wonderful to have kind of both of them in my corner to, you know, my co-founder herself, Ada, who I still reach out to all the time whenever I have ideas that I want to bounce off of her or questions that I have with former students. Um, and then, you know, we went through a formal accelerator programs, things Brooklyn Beta, which I think we were the only, it was called summer camp. We were the only cohort to go through it. It was a one and done type thing, but we did meet a lot of incredible people through that. So like 
Liz Danzico was someone who we chatted with early on. And just through being, I think, part of the ecosystem in New York in that early period of time when everybody was really getting up to speed. You have people like Brad Hargraves and the crew that was starting General Assembly at the time were there, Charlie O'Donnell running a lot of events and bringing people together. And as a good citizen for those sorts of ecosystems, you try to give as much as you can get. And so my perspective on all that is, you know, regardless of the industry in which someone operates, they always have something to offer Mm -hmm. and you always have a problem that you're facing that needs to be solved. And so being kind to people and being available when other people reach out to you, I think allows you to find people who are both well, I reach out to you occasionally with questions or have you come and speak in my class. So I have former students now who are there as mentors and advisors to people who are 20 years my senior. So wide net. Cast a wide net <laughs> is my advice on that. Yeah. And, you know, over time from when you founded Soul Crash to today, you've definitely kind of shifted in this direction of being more of a mentor and advisor to a lot of new founders. So how do you think about your role today when you're working with founders? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that you're trying to do is to help founders see what they can't see on their own. So in my role now, both in the work that I do within Yale and and outside of Yale, For the students that I work with, I work with everything from students who are founding semiconductor materials companies to autonomous robots to pure play nonprofits. And there's no way that any single person can have a deep understanding of every industry in which these founders are operating. Mm -hmm. And honestly, even if you're in the exact same industry, so much of the context is different from startup to startup. So you're bringing your own personal perspective to it. You're bringing your own set of resources. So whether that's a background and understanding that someone may not have, whether that's capital and access to capital or access to people who have capital, there's just so much that is different from startup to startup. And then there are things that are commonalities that you can see. So I would say the biggest thing is to really listen to the founders, to um, you know hear what they have to say. I try to approach it as what problem are you facing right now? Why do you think you're facing this problem? How have you approached solving that particular problem? What do you think your options are? And listening to that Mm-hmm. So that you really understand the context in which they're operating with the understanding that there's absolutely no way that you will ever know as much as that individual knows mm-hmm. at that particular point in time about their business and what's going on. I think where you see some issues with mentorship is where sometimes when mentors come in with what they perceive to be an asymmetric set of experiences and, mm-hmm. and they might view themselves more as the expert in a particular field and they may be an incredible expert. But that level of expertise does not give you the right or the responsibility to tell that entrepreneur what to do. Mm -hmm. I think what you should be doing is exploring with them a set of possibilities. And then from that saying, okay, for that particular problem, here's what I've seen in this particular case. I've now worked with hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs. So in this instance, I saw this, you know, this person had the same problem. They went down this particular way, down that path. 
they made this particular choice and this was the outcome. Here were the circumstances as I saw them in which they were operating. This piece may be different to you, et cetera. Here's another example of somebody who kind of faced the same decision point. Here's a couple of articles that you can read about other people who face these issues. And here's a couple of people that you might want to talk to. So like a good, for instance, on this is I had a student this semester who was wrestling with somebody who was coming in who had deep experience in the field, who had already sold a company in the space, who was looking to come on as an advisor, but also kind of, I would say, an advisor plus. And so was looking for non-standard equity grant for the role that the person was trying to play in this business. And the student was proposing what I would say was an outsized amount of equity at the start. And so, you know, you sit there and you have a conversation about what are the consequences if you make that choice? What are the expectations if you're giving away that much equity relative to the role that the person's playing? How might an investor in the future rejigger your cap table because of it? So there's all of these different ways in which you can approach it. And I think approaching it with empathy and then with actual examples and materials to read and people to talk to is kind of the best thing you can do. I think entrepreneurs should shy away from any mentor that says you need to do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not that mentor's choice ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense and is really helpful. So tying into what you just shared of, you know, the number of founders in which you work with, I'm curious, what are the biggest kind of common challenges that you feel new founders face? Oh my gosh. This semester I had more founders facing the issue of naming than I've ever had before. (laughs) Um, I think as you see, particularly in the DTC space, the direct consumer space, because there's so much available for people who are interested in launching direct-to-consumer brands that so many more brands are launching and therefore so many more names are taken. Naming is incredibly difficult for people to do. Prioritizing your time. You will always have a list of a thousand things that need to get done. And the best entrepreneurs figure out, all right, what are the things that I need to be doing now? Sequentially, Why does that make sense? Because action A may lead to action B. And if you don't do action A first, you may have missed the opportunity to do action B correctly. So really understanding what those dependencies are and then prioritizing their time based upon it. And then recognizing, okay, well, you've spent enough time on that. It is good enough. That 80% rule really is right. You've got enough information to make a decision stop spending your time, spinning your wheels, trying to come to the perfect answer because there is no perfect answer when you're trying to get something up and off the ground. Mm -hmm. And then how do you delegate those things that you can't do yourself? So what's most core to the business that you need to be focusing on, that you need to understand that you need to own at the earliest stage. And if you don't have the set of skills to help you execute on that. How are you going to find them? How are you going to spend your time reasonably trying to find them? And at what point do you need to bring someone else in to help you out? I think is the biggest thing as well. So are there any sets of skills that you feel like new founders often sort of underestimate the need for when they're first getting started? Gosh, so many. (laughs) I mean, you really are just doing everything. And therefore, you know, you've got this situation because you're doing everything where you have to figure out which things you're going to do at hundred percent, which things you're going to do at 50%. Basically. I think if you're starting a digital company or you're starting a web application or a mobile application, something that is where the digital product is core and you don't have product development experience, I think that doesn't preclude you from being able to be a good product developer, but you do have to do a little bit more work to, to kind of get there. So you know, I would say for you, your background in architecture 
Although I wouldn't necessarily say that's a perfect background for a product person. The reality is that you had to figure out how a system of things worked and then design a process that would create an experience for the people who are moving through the space that you were building. And therefore that is very much of a product experience. I'm working with another former student right now who has a background in real estate. And one might say, okay, well, you worked for that real estate company that was very much of kind of experiential consumer facing real estate, but you don't have any digital product management. And so how do you think you're going to be able to be the person who's coming up with the best product here? And the reality is that she spent a lot of time creating experiences for those users. And ultimately that is what you're doing when you're building a web application or a mobile application. You're trying to figure out how is this technology impacting the user? How is it getting them to do whatever we want them to do? And so I don't necessarily think that's the case, but I do think that when I have students who don't have those skills, I will point them to some resources that will kind of help them get up to speed. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think from what I recall and have experienced, it it becomes very much about understanding the skill set you have and then learning how to take that skill set from the problems you used to solve to a new set of problems that you're now engaging and, and really understanding where your strengths are and where the gaps are. And I think if you if you're looking at it within the context of the majority of the entrepreneurs that I'm working with who aren't necessarily friends who reach out to me to talk to me about their ideas or former students who are reaching out to me. The majority of them are actually currently students. And so I will direct them to classes. Like if you are at the school of management and you are planning to launch a web application or software based mm-hmm. application, you should take Kyle's managing software development and teams. And even though you probably won't be the person who day in and day out is building the back end of a website, you will at least understand the vocabulary to be able to operate mm-hmm. and to be able to manage those people who are with more empathy and understanding than you might otherwise be able to. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the databases class that he's teaching. Same thing if someone doesn't have any design background, go take a class at the art school. There are ways in which you can get enough information so that you can better understand when you are hiring or whether it's a consultant or a full-time employee, Mm -hmm. when you're hiring them and bringing them on, what are those realistic expectations that you can set for them and hold them accountable for? And what's unrealistic? Like how long should something take? How much should it cost? Without having that understanding, it becomes very difficult, I think, to be able to make those decisions. And I think, again, that's another place where if you don't have necessarily access to a school that has Mm-hmm. many classes on many things, you can find those correct mentors who can kind of give you some guidance. Mm-hmm. So. so I'm also curious, I mean, having been like with the School of Management and in this kind of advisor mentor role for the last decade, are there trends in the kinds of problems that founders are trying to solve today versus, you know, when you first started in this kind of advisor mentor role? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I started specifically at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism. So the majority of the companies that were coming through that were more kind of pure play Mm -hmm. sites. Looking at the set of people coming through the School of Management over the past seven years, like I said, there's just a much greater set of low code, no code code. Mm-hmm. technologies now that allow you to build certain types of ventures more quickly. And therefore you see students gravitating towards those. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a lot of students who are interested in launching some sort of DTC brand because they want something that's not out there in the market. And 
it's frankly easier to get something up and launched in that space. Much more difficult because of that, because there's a greater supply of products coming online every day to kind of break through the noise. But you can spin something up fairly quickly, whether it's a beverage company or whether it's a clothing company with not a huge amount of capital and test it out in a way that I don't think was possible even five years ago. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing more of a shift to that. I think I've seen in the past year, some students who are trying to tackle some of the big problems. I'm not sure in the year of COVID that we saw as much of that Mm -hmm. as we probably will going into next year. And I think the reason for that is that a lot of those solutions to some of the bigger, hairier problems really do come at those intersections of management and the environment or management and the econ department. So I've seen a couple of students who are trying to deal with income inequality, which is, I think, one of the largest issues that we have to deal with Mm -hmm. are none period right now. I suspect when we're back on campus and we're all interacting with each other in person, again, you'll see more of that, you know, because world-class school of the environment, we do tend to see across Yale, not just, you know, within our narrow scope of the school of management, students who are trying to build ventures that have some sort of positive environmental benefit. And I think we'll continue to see that. Our program is still fairly young. We launched in 2014. So you're starting to see things like Wild Type, which is a sustainable food company that's come up. You have Seth Goldman, who's there, who's done Beyond Meat and is now involved in several plant-based ventures. As you see more of that publicized writ large across the university, we just by that nature then attract those types of students who are interested in those sorts of ventures. So I think things related to climate change, particularly given the focus on that within the Biden administration and the subsequent funding that will come through the federal government because of it, we'll start to see more of that over the next couple of years, definitely. So a lot of these are like really big, complex problems. And I think in a typical year, you'd be spending a lot of time with these founders, like engaged in conversation, like in person on campus. So I'm curious over the kind of last year, year and a half, as you're kind of teaching and working with founders remotely, what has changed in your thoughts on teaching and and mentorship? And do you approach it differently now that we're in kind of more of a virtual environment? So I would say there definitely have been positives and negatives. So the negative I would definitely say is that lack of just the casual interactions, the water cooler talk per se. I really do think that that impacts founders in a very specific way. So you went through the program, you know the benefit of being in a cohort of people who are facing the same pain and suffering that you are, whether it's at that particular moment or whether it was a month prior or whether you're experiencing it and sharing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just had such fewer opportunities to hear that you can set up something that's a virtual conversation, but everybody was very much zoomed out by the end of this semester. Really, really zoomed out. So I think you missed that. I think you missed the, you know, I have an office, as you know, that has floor to ceiling glass. And when people see me in there, they knock on the door. So they miss knowing when I'm available and not available. I think one of the things that I did notice this year, and we'll see if this changes when we're back in person again next year, is people seem more hesitant to look around them and make the asks that they should be asking. So pinging me and asking me if I have 15 minutes or when I've got somebody who's coming into the classroom, 
being bold enough to ask a question and then to follow up and then to set up a follow-up call. And all of those things are so incredibly important. Again, back to that idea of building that kind of cloud of people around you who can answer all of those various questions that are kind of come up at some point or another. So I don't know if that's a generational shift that we're seeing or if it's just something from COVID. I think COVID caused people to shut down a little bit more than maybe they typically would. And so hopefully that's a behavioral change that's tied to COVID itself and not necessarily to a generational shift in how they approach interacting with people and networking, et cetera. So I would say I had fewer questions and fewer students who were standing in line five in a row to talk to the speaker post-class. And again, those people who are a little bit more introverted who may not want to ask that question in front of 22 other students probably didn't follow up with that person afterwards versus Mm -hmm. having that in-person experience with a speaker where they are casually then in our space as a school of management and you can Mm -hmm. kind of catch them and have a side conversation. So I think that piece hopefully again will change in the fall. I would say from a positive perspective, because we are in New Haven, I think it's very difficult to get somebody from the West Coast to, unless they're on the East Coast already, to commit to them coming to New Haven to speak in class. And so I had some incredible speakers this year who just simply wouldn't have been able to come in the past. So I think going into the fall next year, we'll probably continue to do some of that remote side of it, maybe not necessarily in class, but in separate workshops during the fall so that students have the ability to hear these stories or, you know, do a deep dive on a particular sector from somebody who really is an expert who wouldn't traditionally be able to come to campus. But yeah. And I think just in general, people are tired. You know, I think people are starting to come out of it now, but I think everyone's facing the same issue of this being in this weird, I don't, I don't know how it is on the West Coast right now, but things are certainly opening up here. And if you've been in your kind of circle of either family or it's just closed quarters for so long, re-entry is, yeah. <laughs> is interesting and difficult and I think exhausting in and of itself. So I think it's going to take a couple of months before we start to see things come back to normal. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm also curious, kind of on a theme of like connection and networking. I know in 2018, you were involved in launching, you know, Yale Women Entrepreneurs and Innovators Initiative, We at Yale. So I'd like to ask a little bit about like what prompted that initiative and what your goals are for We at Yale going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think what prompted that was exactly what you're seeing now. And honestly, over the past three years, you've seen such incredible progress, I feel like in some regards. And then if you look at the data, I think there's a lot more that's being said about it now. The data is still lagging on whether or not some of it's being solved, but you have these statistics that everybody knows around the number of women who are in investing roles in venture capital, the number of women who are founders, the number of female founders, and in particular, female founders from backgrounds that are non-traditional founder backgrounds. Women of color in particular face just these unreasonable hurdles in getting funding, and they are oftentimes some of the most hardcore and gritty, I would say, entrepreneurs, because they've had to prove so much for so long in every aspect of their lives. Mm -hmm. When they take that to entrepreneurship, it's just incredible to see. So what we were trying to do with that was to begin to try to build out a network across the university of founders and then also mentors and advisors who were really interested in supporting female and female identifying entrepreneurs and innovators. And I think part of our approach there was redefining what it means to start something. So 
we are on the academic side of the house at Yale. We are really kind of do not do a lot of extracurricular work. We leave that to our colleagues. There's almost 20 innovation centers across the university. A good number of them do only extracurricular activities. And in particular, you have the Sci Center for Innovative Thinking, which is a massive program at the university that crosses every um, every school and every center. And so we tend to kind of leave that extracurricular side to the other people. But you know, what we can do is say in one of our classes, we are going to provide you with the experience of launching something. And we don't define that as you need to launch a semiconductor materials company. We are super excited to help those students who have those aspirations and have the skills and knowledge to do that Mm -hmm. and have the technical expertise to be able to do it. But I do think it's equally as important to pull people through the process of just exploring what it's like to find a problem, to find people who have that problem, to talk to them, to figure out how you can solve that problem and to put something out into the world. And it's that putting something out into the world mm-hmm. and pressing go that I think is often the biggest hurdle for people. And so that could be something as simple as, okay, I want to start a podcast. The process of starting that podcast and putting something out into the world and gathering an audience is still, in my mind, a very useful exercise. And so this is a long-winded answer to your question. We don't measure our success by here's the number of ventures that we have that have received X amount of funding that have gone on to exit for Y amount of dollars, right? That is not our metric of success. Our metric of success is exposing as many people to the process of entrepreneurship and to lowering the barriers to do so Mm -hmm. and to helping them acquire again, like, what do you know? What do you not know? So if somebody wants to build a web application and they've never been exposed to coding before you're here, you're a student, go take a computer science class. Mm -hmm. If you get a C, nobody's going to care. Your parents might, but probably not because they shouldn't be seeing your grades post high school anyways. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, go take that risk to acquire a set of skills. And that person who goes through that process then is more able to then go and become a technical product manager. And from becoming a technical product manager, they then may have the capacity if they're at an or to become employee number one, two, three, four, five, where they have the potential to acquire more equity than they would going into a traditional product management role at say Google. And then they're building out that wealth that they then can turn around and invest in other founders or can act as an advisor to other founders and kind of start to build up that set of skills over a period of time that then collectively will change that ecosystem for non-traditional entrepreneurs to see other people and have access to other people who are like them. So that's kind of was the longer term goal. I think it'll take five, 10 years for that to change. Yeah. I think, you know, some of the stats that were released this year indicate that I think we went forward and now we're going back a little bit more. And I suspect it's going to be a little bit like that for a long time. It's still mm-hmm. for those venture backed companies. There still are a lot of barriers to entry. So, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of research around you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. I mean, it's an initiative that like I was really excited to see when it it got started and I try to like attend what I could. One of the things I thought was interesting about the answer you just gave was you also talked about like the kind of process, right? It's like learning skills in the process. And you talked a little bit about technical skills. The other thing I'm interested in, I think maybe given the nature of this series is when you're working with early stage ventures, like how do you think about the role of design and design research? And how do you talk about that with new founders? 
Yeah. I mean, I think we tend to go to the same materials that a lot of people use. So obviously a lot of it's focused on lean startup methodology. And before we get off of we at Yale, I, I should acknowledge the fact that I am no longer running that, that we have Abby from Sci City and Trish from my group are leading the charge there and doing all of the hard, hard work and heavy lifting to make sure that program continues to succeed in the future. So I just want to give them a little shout out. But I think, you know, we use the same lean startup methodology that most people do. We rely on things from IDEO that are kind of the earliest customer discovery type frameworks that you can refer to. It's all about for us getting students to understand that the most important thing they can do in the earliest days is getting out and talking to customers and getting feedback and really understanding not just what are the demographics of your particular user persona, but what are the psychographics? What's motivating that person? Why are they doing something in the way that they're doing it now? What are the biggest problems in their lives that keep them from doing whatever it is you're trying to help them do? And so, you know, it's critically important. So that's kind of the product side of it. I would say from the branding side of it, we're lucky this semester to have a guy in the class who was former creative director from the big agency in New York and his lens and the way that he looks at early stage startups is just so different than the typical, I would say, school of management student. So again, to the best degree that we can. And I think ideally next year when we're all in person, he'll still be here because he was a first year student, finding those people across campus that have those skills that you don't have. And again, interacting with them and understanding what their process is when they're thinking about developing the brand side of it from the earliest stages. I use the standard talking to humans, testing with humans. I think that's the most digestible thing for students to read early on. Rent the Runway case is always really good. Warby Parker case is always really good because it really talks about the process that those founders went through at the earliest stages to gather information from potential customers and then incorporate it into their product or their service. I mean, talking with humans is definitely like highly influential for me. And I think you, you are the one that told me to read that book. So it's just the easiest couple dollars you could spend. So. Yeah. But I do definitely feel like there is a big learning curve when you're starting to get really comfortable with like speaking to strangers or speaking to people that don't know you and being really comfortable with the fact that like they might not like anything that you're putting out there. So kind of like, what do you advise to founders like those first few times when they're going through that process and they're nervous and they've gotten their first set of like just truly terrible feedback? Yeah. I mean, I think the standard set of things. So I've done that before. I know how incredibly awkward it is. All I say to them is it becomes less awkward the more you do it. It's just mm -hmm. like anything else. The first couple of times you do it and you go walk up to a random stranger in a grocery store because you're launching a food brand and you want to know why they're buying X versus Y, that is super awkward. And you're going to get a lot of people who just say, no, I don't want to talk to you. Get away from me. Why are you approaching me at the Whole Foods and Dairy? I'm like, no. But my dad has a phrase <laughs> that's commonly said in our house as well, which is kind of get over it because you're going to get over it, but you won't get over it if you don't actually do it. So just go do it and give yourself some time. And then, you know, the biggest thing is try to put that journalist hat on. So be objective in the way that you're collecting that information. Try not to influence what that person is saying to you. Make sure you go outside of your circle of friends because they will be kind to you, but that's really not what you need at that particular time. And to develop thick skin, you're going to get a lot a lot of no's and you're going to get a lot of information that might say like, okay, every indication is at this point that I have a really stupid idea. 
I think that it's still really valid to have to go through that process of collecting that information because that's something likely you've never done before. And you'll be so much more prepared when that good idea does come up to actually do that and then gather information that's positive. That says, oh, wait, great. This is, I'm onto something. There's so many people who think the way that I'm thinking about this particular problem and approach solving it or think that the way that I'm looking to solve it is a reasonable way to solve it. So I try to approach things with a sense of humor, with empathy, but also with high expectations. So yes, it might be painful. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Go do it. And then come tell me the stories about how painful it was and we can laugh at it together. And the next time you go do it, it's not going to be as painful. I feel like that's definitely an accurate representation of your approach and my experience of your approach. Um, So we've touched upon, you know, a lot of like what you've seen change, like with founders and sort of with the industry at large. One of the things I'm curious about also is, you know, has your own approach to advising founders and working with them evolved over the last 10 years? Or how does the industry think about teaching entrepreneurship and how has that evolved over the last you know decade? Yeah, I think it has. You know, I, I think for our class, the school of management itself is unique in that it's smaller than other schools. I think if you look at a Stanford or an MIT, those schools both have 4,500 students who are in engineering. We have roughly 5,000 undergraduates across every degree. We just have a different set of students that come to Yale. And I think because of that, we've tried a couple of different things along the way and have been very experimental in our approach as well. So with my class, I think you were there for one of the classes is when I was specifically incorporating a traditional curriculum into the class to give you a sense of what it is, because other people don't know. We essentially have a speaker who comes in once a week. Traditionally, that's in person. They then stay for the afternoon. They mentor students in the afternoon or meet with them. And then we, as there's four of us who are associated with the class, meet with student teams once a week and kind of help them work through those problems. That approach is, what have you done? What are you looking to do? How can I help? essentially. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we tried to incorporate more of a curriculum into that class that was, you know, along the lines of the standard that you would see in any other business school. And what we found was essentially what students most need is they need mentorship and support and they need space in their calendar to be able to apply the things that they're learning in other classes to their particular venture at this particular point in time. Students can take the class multiple semesters in a row, so it becomes difficult to have a curriculum in there because people are coming in at very different stages, very different types of companies. We have nonprofits in there. We have for-profits in there. We have high-tech, high-growth ventures. We have what would traditionally be called a lifestyle business. Because of that, it becomes difficult to incorporate that particular curriculum in there. So I think what I have tried to do, and again, this just comes from having done it for a longer period of time, is really get that right mix of understanding how to ask the right questions to get the information out of the entrepreneur at that particular point in time to help them make the decisions that they need to make that are most critical at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so that just comes with more experience. So I would say that's evolved quite a bit. In terms of entrepreneurship in general at universities writ large, you see so much more now than you saw when I was a graduate student at the School of Management back in 2006. We launched the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute, which was really one of the first university-based programs for student founders that was roughly based on Y Combinator and Techstars, traditional accelerators as a summer program. And now if a university doesn't have that, it's just surprising. 
So there's hundreds of these programs across the United States and across the world. They all have roughly the same approach. Some have more of a focus on technology, some have less, but you're giving that same level of support, mentorship, education to students. And I think just the scale of that is substantially different than it was 10 years ago. And then I think in general, the ecosystem itself is just so much larger. So outside of that, when you're looking again at venture-backed startups, you have so many seed funds right now that have popped up and so many different types of accelerators and so many different types of programs for all different stripes of founders. And so I just think the level of support is much more substantial than it was when I started 10 years ago or longer than that, 13 years ago now, 14, 15. Wow. I've been doing this a long time. (laughs) 15. That's scary. Wilma, thank you for making me feel old. (laughs) I I, I appreciate that. Give a specific number. Yeah. So I'm curious, like having reflected back on kind of what's happened with entrepreneurship as an industry and how it's taught, I would love to hear what are you optimistic about as you think about the future of entrepreneurship, both as an industry and also how it's taught? I'll start with what I'm maybe pessimistic about, which is really the antithesis of this podcast, but I still think there's so much work to do around diversity and inclusion in this space. Mm -hmm. I think there's a mindset shift that is less about me and what benefits me and how does it benefit me to more of how does this benefit us collectively and society at large. And so I am optimistic that there are enough people that are either at the earlier stages of their careers and are really focusing on this in a substantial way or are at the later stages of their careers and maybe operated very much in that me versus we mentality for so long, but have realized that that's not a sustainable path for us Mm. from a societal perspective Mm. that I think that will start to shift hopefully over the next five to 10 years. I think again, with some government support coming in and I don't know if you saw the comments by Janet Yellen, love her, hate her based upon her history, but you know, I think there is going to be more of an emphasis of around, you know, how is government funding going to go back to the traditional levels that it has been at in the past that have allowed us as a nation to compete both from an infrastructure perspective, from an education perspective, from a technological advance perspective. And so I'm hopeful that, again, with that funding will come this focus on the we. Not trying to sound like a socialist, but I do think Silicon Valley over the past 10 years has become very focused on the me. I'm optimistic that there are enough people now who are starting to say that's not great for all of us that hopefully going forward, I'm optimistic that that will change. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that answer. And I think embedded in that, it's also this understanding that as we've sort of broadened the net of who is an entrepreneur and who has the opportunity to become an entrepreneur, it also changes just the nature of what the industry itself is shaped around because we've allowed you know more people to be a part of that process, which is yeah, and the values that come from someone else's lived experience who maybe did not grow up with as much access to everything as you did. And they do now have some access and are very motivated to do something positive with that access. I think the issue is if you have, I mean, this is a case with, with women, like it would be great to say women should go out and go down the exact same path as a substantial number of male founders, say PayPal mafia folks have. To me, that's not an optimal outcome. That's kind of women 
following a similar path that is very much excluding an entire set of people and as a society is going to have a significant net negative impact over the long run. We have a responsibility to think differently about the types of organizations that we're building, why we're building them and who we're including in that process and how we're rewarding them. So I'm optimistic that's going to happen. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining me in all this like incredible and deep conversation around these topics. Yeah. So happy to be here. So glad to see you on the West Coast and look forward to having you back in class. Always. Yeah, hopefully soon. And thank you everyone out there for tuning in to follow along and hear the most recent releases. Head to substantial.com backslash optimistic design and join us again soon as we continue to take a future focused look at design, ethical innovation and technology. I'm Wilma Lamb and I look forward to talking with you again soon.